I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. Dennis, what uh, what are we talking about today? We are actually taking the ball that you have given us and punting it or running with it, whatever you call it, <laughs> about uh, Eucharistic miracles. Because this is this, this season on the Eucharist, but Eucharistic miracles are these kind of odd aberrations where the ordinary looks kind of boring, but then these extraordinary miracles where the host turns into blood or flesh is... Uh, actually really the ordinary thing, but we think of it as a miracle. So that's what we're talking about today. Why would God do this? And how do you know if it's legit? Well, first, why don't you tell us why you wanted to talk about this? Yeah. So, you know, I'm um, in my new position with uh, BVM Studio. You know, we're doing some uh, partnership collaborations with the Eucharist Revival. So I'm very excited about that. And in some of our research uh, about what people wanted to know, about Eucharist or, or, or way that like to learn about the real presence or any like anything like that. Uh, saints and the Eucharist and Eucharistic miracles were like really high up on the list. And so we have a lot of evidence to show that that's something that is very interesting to people. And what I like is that when I started kind of, when I dived into learning more about Eucharistic miracles, it actually just bolstered my, my faith even more with some of these really cool stories. So there are a lot of really great Eucharistic miracles out there. There's some really great documented and proved Eucharistic miracles. I'm sure there's a lot more that <laughs> are in the uh, process of approval and things like that. There's also, I think you guys remember a few years ago, there's there's things that people thought were a Eucharistic miracle, but it's not. So there was that host, um, gosh, I want to say it was like Oklahoma or Nebraska, Chris, where it was... Um, consecrated host and it was placed in water and then they thought it was turning into blood and heart tissue but it was really just a mold so there's just a wide gamut of things here but even though that wasn't a eucharistic miracle it gave us an opportunity to talk about what that might look like and so uh that's where i'm coming from uh so yeah you you mentioned that you wanted to talk a little bit about some foundational things so let's do that and then maybe we can cover some examples yeah well the fundamental question is if we have the eucharist Every day, why do we need Eucharistic miracles? And like most miracles, they happen when people's faith is weak, or for some reason, God decides that some aspect of his reality needs to be better known, or devotion to something needs to be stoked. You know, I'm looking at a book called The Eucharistic Miracles of the World. It's actually the catalog of the Vatican International Exhibition on Eucharistic Miracles. And it has a foreword by none other than the man who hired you, Chris. The most Reverend Burke? Raymond Leo Burke before he was cardinal when he was still Archbishop of St. Louis. And he was making the point that, uh, you know, the Eucharist and evangelization uh, go together and that um, miracles, he says, witness to some truth or testify to someone's sanctity. That's that's what miracles are for in general. He quotes from John, famous John Hardin on that. He was a Jesuit scholar. So, you know. Why do we even care about miracles? It's because when we hear about them, we're like, oh, yeah, a miracle really happened. Maybe this is legit. You know, someone says, I'm going to pray over you. I have a healing gift. You're like, whatever. 
until you can heal my, you know, blindness, I don't believe you, right? And so they did, wow, oh, wow, suddenly uh, it's real. And so this happens in the Gospels too, where people don't have any faith. I think I used this one recently. There's the story of them lowering the man down through the roof, the paralytic on the mat. And Christ has just said, you know, things about himself that indicate his divinity or the sins are forgiven. Well, who are you to forgive sins? Well, what's easier to believe? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk, right? Get up and walk is something in the physical realm of things that we say, oh, yeah, paralyzed people don't get up and walk. So this must mean that he has the power to forgive sins. But notice one of them doesn't substitute for the other. It just is this kind of confirmation often for those whose faith uh, is weak. So there's a really good introduction to this book, actually, that kind of lays out the, the law, so to speak, and why we bother with this. It's actually by Mons Monsignore Raffaella Martinelli. Rector of the International Ecclesial College of St. Charles, wherever that is. Uh, and so a couple of things. He's, the first part there is, is limits, right? The first thing he says, our faith is not founded on Eucharistic miracles. Chris, can you gloss hmm. on that? <laughs> our faith hmm. is not founded on Eucharistic miracles. Yeah, well, I don't know. What, is, what does he mean by that? That uh, our, our faith is... Our faith is founded on the promise of God made through Jesus Christ. And I suppose mm -hmm. our faith in the Eucharist is that Jesus, who is God, said, this is my body. And churches always believed that to be the case. And that, I mean, in some ways, <laughs> yeah, in some real ways, that's a miracle. But these Eucharistic miracles you're talking about here are almost like Eucharistic miracles twice over. It's making a miracle on top of a miracle by showing uh, a piece of flesh or something like that. So I suppose that's what he means is that our faith in the Eucharist doesn't require, ought not to require, although could be assisted by these Eucharistic miracles. It's founded on the promise in the, of Jesus. Right. And this book has miracles all over the world, little short stories about how each one of them happened. And they're everything from some Huguenot didn't believe in the real presence and stepped on a consecrated host and where the spikes of his shoes went through, three little spots of blood appeared to the, the face of Jesus appears in one. There's one where a priest accidentally knocks over the chalice at mass and has white wine in it. But when it spills into the corporal and the altar cloth, it comes mm. out as red and they still have it there, you know, with the blood there. Mm. And some of the amazing things, and Jesse will probably talk more about this, is sometimes when they analyze these now, even if it's 500 years later, it's living cardiac tissue, like still alive. Like if you if you showed it to a scientist under a microscope, they'd say, oh, this is living cardiac tissue. And even though it's 500 years old and been in a, in a reliquary, it's kind of amazing stuff. But the, the amazing is not the reason. So what they say here is our faith is not founded on miracles, as you said, Chris, but on the proclamation of the Lord Jesus received with faith through the action of the mm -hmm. Holy Spirit. And so it's always important to say the miracle is not the thing in itself, but the miracle is the, the pointer uh, to it. And yeah, you, you could. Uh, sorry, you, uh, Jesse, you know, just to, to hear that that's what um, market research isn't the right way to think about this, but this, that, that, people have a great interest in these Eucharistic miracles, and that's what they want to see more of is um, not surprising and a good thing. Uh, and, and it is a good thing. But I know at least in the diocese, we were, because I think, uh, Dennis, we have, a, I don't know if it's the Carlo Acuti's set of Eucharistic miracles, or maybe it's the many of these that you're talking about from uh, Cardinal Burke, is, you know, uh, to what degree do we put forward, you know, is, is this Eucharistic revival 
what what's the place of Eucharistic miracles should play in that, right? Because I think it it could uh, I don't know if it's risk the right word, be, feature too prominently in the uh, Eucharistic revival. Does that make sense, Jesse? But yeah, could it diminish what a regular ordinary mass and host the perception of that could be you know so if you have this thing that's amazing and you have hosts that are dripping with blood but my host is not dripping with blood what does that mean is it Uh, less hum yeah is it less uh jesus than that other thing and Mm. and then what about form and matter and transubstantiation and you know like you get into some of that stuff that's not to say that they aren't amazing you know Mm -hmm. miracles um but I think it's just a, I think it's a gift, you know, to be able to see what we cannot see. And yeah. that's it. Yeah, no, that's, I think, Dennis, the stuff you're reading and these, these, these kind of foundation principles are just exactly what needs to lead this uh, discussion. Right, because everybody wants to see something cool, right? Everybody wants to see some miracle happen. And they happen still, you don't hear about them often, but they do. Maybe you saw that video of the priest who was cured from his brain tumor at Lourdes recently. Mm. And he went online and said, Hey, I have this brain tumor. Now it's gone. And it's kind of amazing. It's okay. God is good. Happy for you. But you see the Eucharist requires faith and faith is believing in something you don't see by definition. So mm. right now, and then you get to see it, not just to be a, a trick, but to strengthen your faith, hopefully if it needs it or to increase devotion. Those, those are kind of the two things they talk about here. So, you know, in this introduction here by uh, Monsignore <laughs> Raffaello, he says, a Christian is not obliged to believe in Eucharistic miracles. Like all private revelation, um, you're not binding. Uh, and you can make up your own mind. Even if the church approves it, you don't have to accept it. Um, but it also says, at the same time, the believer must not exclude the possibility that God could do this. God's power is such that he could do this if he wants to. But the prudence of the church is necessary in every individual case. You have to say, okay, well, is this mold, like you were saying, Jesse? Or is there a growth around this? Has Eucharistic love uh, increased? Um, has it made Sunday Mass kind of unimportant because, or feel unimportant because people want to talk of the miracle all the time, and so they don't go to Mass anymore? That would be a sign that something's not right there. Mm-hmm. Or if if you say, well, you know, God forgot to tell us something about the Eucharist, and now we've had this miracle that finally reveals, right? That is not a good uh, fruit of this because Christ is the full um, revelation. Or, you know, if the Eucharist takes up too much time, right? They call it excessive importance to the miraculous um, and undervaluing the everyday dimension. Um, and then, you know, obviously believing in illusions and charlatans, that would be... Um, something wrong. So what he says here, if the church is going to approve a Eucharistic miracle, it always has these three elements. Uh, The event in question doesn't contain anything that contradicts faith and morals, right? So if it said, well, it's not really transubstantiation, it's, it should be transcorporation or whatever. It it has to become literal flesh or else it's not real. That would be a problem. Um, And it has to be lawful to make it public. So if this happens to you, you know, in your private chapel, you can't just go around telling everybody you have to ask permission. And the faithful are authorized to give their prudent assent to it um, by the church. And so um, even though no one's required to believe in it, if you're going to, you have the church has to um, approve it. So those are the those are the little cautions. But then there's a second part called positive aspects. Like what is the fruit of this? Why does it matter? 
And this goes back to your, your mystagogy, uh, Chris. Here's the phrase, they help us go beyond the visible and the perceptible. And that's mm -hmm. the goal. If you just stop at the visible, then you're just looking at something and that's it. Um, but you have to admit the existence of something beyond. The reason God did this is because the Eucharist really is the Eucharist. And if it's an extraordinary happening, going beyond scientific uh, facts, then you have to admit, well, something incomprehensible is happening here. So even in the Eucharistic miracle, we say, well, now it looks more literally like flesh. We still don't know how it happened, right? It's always this miraculous action of God beyond human reason alone. Even um, if what you have can be scientifically assessed, it can't be scientifically demonstrated how it happened. That's a really interesting mm -hmm. thing. You can look at it under a microscope and see what it is. You can test the blood type. You can, they even do DNA studies on these. Um, but no one can explain how it happened. Like we took the heart out of a cadaver and put it in, you know, here. Mm -hmm. So it has to be both scientifically accessible when you have it to be what it claims to be and not some mold or something. But at the same time, scientists can't tell you how it happened. Um, and then that it becomes um, a leading thing to public revelation, right? What is the public revelation? How does this private revelation um, contribute to that? And public revelation always is things disclosed by God. And they give a whole list here. Started with Abraham, all the way to Jesus Christ. It's attested to in the scripture. It's intended for everybody, not just, you know, some local shrine. Um, and then it always ends up with, with Christ. And so if you do this, if you include these private revelations into public revelation, the idea is that God becomes more credible and trustworthy, not less. And uh, we can't expect manifestations like this outside of God's will, other than, you know, what God wants. So you can't like say, okay, I'm going to do this and make it happen. And um, this is how it goes. This is the basic guidelines for it um, to help us understand and live the faith. If that's the fruit, awesome. If they encourage us to love the Eucharist more and go to Mass and go to adoration, awesome. If they become about themselves, then something's not quite right. And uh, this is where liturgy and popular piety start to start to meet because you have liturgy in the Eucharist. But if a shrine grows around the Eucharistic miracle and Mass is there several times a day and people start going to Mass and they come and do adoration and then they start going to reconciliation, as it says here uh, in this book, if these places of liturgical miracles, the Eucharistic miracles lead to these good things, then we know that something of God is there. And um, they um, genuinely stimulate piety and love of God. And here's the final criterion. He says, it is the vital form of the whole church, which is nourished directly by the gospel, the liturgy that nourishes the whole church, nourished by the gospel. So if these miracles promote that, lead to that, increase all of that belief in the real presence, then we know, hey, this is an action of God. And if it doesn't, if it causes division and it starts to, you know, cause people to say, well, you had a miracle and I didn't and all that stuff, then you start saying, well, maybe you should stay private <laughs> for a while. <laughs> or if you say, I'm going to just look at this host and never go to mass, that's a problem too. So that's a little introduction to uh, thinking about why these would happen at all and then how we can tell a good one from a false one. And, and, you know, just to kind of add some of this too, the, the church does not take any of this lightly. So, for example, um, you know, Lourdes, uh, you know, you had mentioned uh, Lourdes. There's, you know, something like, 
you know, over 7,000 open cases right now. And there's a Lord's Medical Bureau that has to like sort through this. Only about 10% of them have been approved as like official, you know, Vatican miracles. In order for them to be like somebody gets cured at Lourdes, they have to meet like a bunch of criteria. Um, this It's called the Lambertini criteria after Pope Leo XIII, who, who uh, wrote them before he was made Pope. Uh, that's right. Right, Chris? I don't know. All right. You well, keep I talking. So. I'll look. Was that his name? Yeah, Lambertini. So, um, so, but anyway, so there's these three criteria. So the medical condition, and this is just for Lourdes, but it just, I think it gives an idea of how serious the church is about this and that they're not just going to willy nilly, you know, go out there and start approving things. Um, So the medical condition has to be serious. Uh, It's not liable to go away on its own. And, um, so, so serious and li- liable to go away on its own. The second thing is the cure must be instantaneous, complete, and lasting. So, just fitting those two things, I think, are you know pretty strict. But the third one is where most miracles fall short, and this is that this is true for uh, miracles for the approval of you know canonization and beatification. This is where a lot of them fall short. Is the third criteria, which um, by the way, the same criteria is used for other miracles, not just uh, Lourdes. That's how important it is. The third criteria is there must be no treatment that relates to the cure. This is this is a big deal. So let's say you have cancer and you're praying to the cause of Fulton Sheen, you know, for his canonization, and but you're getting chemo. Well, they're not going to count that because you are getting treatment for cancer so it's it's this weird thing is like if you have this thing you can't have treatment for that thing in order for it to count as a miracle so that's where a lot of these fall short and i say this none of these are eucharistic miracles or anything like that uh so to speak but i just say it because it gives a little context of the you know how serious the church is uh, when she declares official eucharistic miracles because because of how important this is you guys touched on this too is that this is not something that we can just be haphazard about and just say oh this is this is great i mean there's a lot of complexity here and so we want to really make sure as a church that we're um you know we're observing what god wants us to observe for the right reasons that's not to say that there are probably aren't hundreds of thousands of miracles that came out of Lourdes that we just don't know about, uh, including spiritual healings or emotional healings or things like that. But in terms of official, you know, that they have to meet that criteria. Hey, just a note about the criteria, the, the Lambertini, this Prospero Lorenzo Lambertini was Benedict Fourteenth, not Leo the 13th. Yeah. Jesse, you know, uh, All right, cut, let's back up. No, no, no. I'm okay being. I'm okay being wrong. I'm definitely. No, I never. Okay I had wrong. never heard those before, actually. Huh. I mean, I yeah, knew there were criteria, but I didn't know that's what. Yeah. They were. And I'll, um, candidly, um, I'm. I want to let you guys know I'm getting a lot of this information and and kind of the desire to talk about this more from uh, somebody that I met through this, you know, new initiative that we're doing. His name is Michael O'Neill, and uh, his his kind of public name is the Miracle Hunter. So if you go to like miraclehunter.com or, you know, we're doing some videos for him for his Instagram page, uh, Miracle Hunter, he's uh, he's got some shows that are on EWTN where he talks about 
uh, Saints and Miracles. So he has this, you know, 30 minute series with reenactments of Padre Pio, mm. St. Bernadette at Lourdes. It's actually really captivating stuff. And he provides a lot of real information. Um, he is an engineer in his first life and uh, he is a very analytical person. And so when he thinks about this, he's like, oh gosh, there's a lot of people out there who will convert or revert through this same process that I have. So that's his goal is to go through this and to find these things that are definitively a hundred percent true um, so that it can help spread the word about, about Christ and, and building counters for Christ. So um, I have to, I have to give a shout out to Michael O'Neill. I've been really enjoying, you know, meeting with him and learning about a lot of this stuff, but, um, but, but yeah, so we have the, 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 the Lambertini criteria. Uh, I don't know if you guys have anything else you wanted to add to that. Not to that in particular, but you know, there, if you do a quick search on Eucharistic miracles online, there's actually a Wikipedia page for it. And um, Eastern Orthodox have some, the, even the Anglican church in Arkansas in 2017 <laughs> had a Eucharistic miracle. So it's not just these things in the middle ages, by people didn't know any, any better. And um you know, there's also stuff out there. I, I just found somebody happened to send me this link right after we talked about doing this. It's a story about a book written by uh, an Italian um, cardiologist. It's called A Cardiologist Examines Jesus, The Stunning Science Behind Eucharistic Miracles. This is a summary of the book. <clears throat> and the guy does all these amazing studies of these miraculous changes and finds out that when you actually study many of these, their human tissue, their cardiac tissue, they're almost all AB negative blood type. It doesn't, you know, say why that matters, um, but you have to get A from one, then from parent and B from another. So it leads to all kinds of thoughts about, well, if Jesus got his flesh from Mary, then how did he have AB positive? How did he have AB blood type? He would, if he was just human, he would only have one. And so lots of interesting things here. He calls it biotheology. And they can tell from the samples of these Eucharistic miracles, first of all, that it's cardiac tissue, but they can also tell what part of the heart it comes from, often the left ventricle, ventricle, and they can tell the way that scientists do this, like murder investigations, that the heart has been through trauma. So they call it, let's see if I can actually do this, catecholamine-related stress. The stress um, causes the heart, you know, to rise, just a normal stress, but like really traumatic stress. You can actually find evidence of it um, in the heart. And they found this in several of these samples that they've gotten from these different Eucharistic miracles. So it's an amazing kind of thing to think, not only does it look like something, but then across centuries, across continents, you have these biotheology <laughs> evidences that are proving the um, this realistic entry into the world of the Eucharist as remarkably consistent. And he does a funny thing here that apparently AB negative is an extremely rare blood type. And so if you were going, it's like 5% of the population. So if you were going to have two Eucharistic miracles over time, and if they were fake, and you just had human blood put on there, the chances of them both using AB negative, because it's only 5% of the population, he figured out is like one in three million that it just happened to be the same blood type that two random people, you know, put. Um, it's a, a crazy, crazy stuff, an amazing stuff. 
and hopefully strengthens our faith in the large um, the larger hey, questions involved. But speaking about these collections of Eucharistic uh, miracles, Dennis, you're talking about. So Carlo Acuti's uh, blessed, right, uh, died in 2006. So he's kind of one of the patrons of this Eucharistic revival. And he was famous for compiling uh, a, a website, I guess, a collection of Eucharistic miracles. And so I, if you just search out Carlo Acuti's Eucharistic miracles, and there it comes up, this miracles list of Eucharistic miracles all over the world, and it's all categorized by country and then it has just links to uh to each of them um but also and so this we've we've had this display in uh in the diocese recently but who is the name of that monsignor that uh, you were referring to uh dennis uh, is that raffaello martinelli yeah yeah it, it's got a link there to that what you were just reading from so if anybody wants to um see what dennis was looking at just to look at carlo Cuti's eucharistic miracles and the kind of the there's a link to these very same principles that dennis was uh speaking about but anyway this is um i don't know the, the bishops want this to be a part of the of the revival i mean not the centerpiece uh but uh, certainly it's a part of it and you know if what jesse says is true and i think it is i mean this is something that uh really is helpful to many people's eucharistic faith so and, and uh, that, you know, book, Dennis, that you're talking about, a lot of the entries for that book can be found at therealpresence.org. So this is where, you know, we're getting some of this stuff as well. It's all it's all online. It's all there. Um, and uh, I guess, you know, I just I want to close by talking about a few different things, a few different uh, stories that I, I found compelling, if that's OK with you guys. Sure. So uh, the first one is uh, actually in, in Buenos Aires. Uh, there were three Eucharistic miracles in 1992, 1994, and 1996. And, you know, one of the miracles was there was consecrated host that was found left on a corporal, and then it was put, placed in water as, as per the prescription from the church, if you find a consecrated host, or even if you don't know it's consecrated, uh, dissolve it in water um, to, you know, uh, properly uh, handle it. So uh, after a day or two, they didn't find anything you know, super weird. And then, you know, six days later, they came back and there was blood in the water. And then um, two years later, there was um, a pix in the tabernacle that was found uh, drops of blood going down the, the seam of the hmm. consecrated host. And then in 1996, um, there was a, a consecrated host that fell on the floor. And so then they placed that in water to dissolve. And then that also turned into heart tissue. So one of the cool things about this is not only that it was three Eucharistic miracles at the same parish, in the same city, in the same country, but um, one of the bishops uh, that was involved with the investigation was uh, none other than uh, Bishop Borgoglio, who is now our Pope Francis. So he was... Uh, involved with the Eucharistic miracle in Argentina before he was uh, made our Holy Father in Rome. And so they, Dennis, like you said, they went through all these tests and you touched on a lot of what I thought was really interesting here is that they found that, you know, the AB blood, blood type, uh, that it was heart tissue and that it was uh, in, in under duress or trauma is, uh, well, I forgot the fancy word that you used, but uh, it was a really fancy word. Yeah. <laughs> Can you say that one more time? 
not unless I look it up. Colometamine trauma or something like that. Had a cholamine-related stress. Okay. So, uh, so, you know, I thought that was really interesting. And, you know, you talked about, Dennis, in the beginning about these happening, you know, for specific reasons or doubts in faith or, you know, for God's plan, things like that. And here I'm sitting like, you know, I've had, I've had doubts in my faith and uh, Aurora, Illinois not, had not one Eucharistic miracle. And suddenly this one parish gets three Eucharistic miracles in three years. Mm. And mm. what's, if you what's didn't doubt that? enough, Jesse, you're, yeah, your doubt to. was not strong enough. <laughs> yeah. I need to doubt more. So, so that's one that I thought, you know, was, was very, uh, you know, fascinating. Um, and again, you know, we've kind of shared where, where we got all of these. Uh, another one I thought was really interesting, and I've heard this one before, but, um, you know, I never really knew the origin of this story. But this is in um, a, a miracle in, in Brussels. And basically, in the year 1370, there were these uh, I don't know, merchants that, you know, were kind of rebellious. And, you know, they came in, they they broke into a church and uh, broke open a tabernacle and they wanted to kind of prove that, uh, you know, the, the rebellious ways. So they took the host and they stabbed the host with a knife. And when they did that, blood started gushing out of the host. And they were like, oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> that would freak you out for sure. Yeah. 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 And so again, you know, investigated by the, by the church and, um, you know, what's, what's great about this too, is not only does the church get involved, but a lot of times the, the local politicians are, are involved at the same time. So, um, you know, there's, there's just a lot of hullabaloo about this, but the hosts were, were, uh, taken, this is what I really like. I see this in a lot of these Eucharistic miracles. So something like this, and there's another one, um, in Santa Rem, which is really cool. I'll talk about that briefly next. But uh, when this is discovered and investigated, then there's a procession of the these hosts back to the cathedral. And, uh, and so that's where the Eucharist miracle remains today in Brussels. And it's now kind of a national symbol, which is great. Like it's, it's one of those things that kind of binds everybody together. This similar thing in Santa Rem, uh, there was a Eucharistic miracle where this woman was in a jealous rage from her husband. I guess she was getting divorced. And so she found this like witch doctor or, or sorcerer or whatever. And that uh, the witch said, hey, go to Catholic church, get a consecrated host, bring it back, and I'll make this love potion. And then, you know, you could your husband mm-hmm. will fall back in love with you. So she does that. And she takes this little scarf and she puts it in her pocket. And as she takes it out, she notices it starts bleeding. So then she puts it in her drawer and closes the drawer. But when she opens it again, there's more blood coming out of it. And again, you know, the bishop gets involved and, and then they have this procession uh, after the investigation or, or, you know, to do the investigation, they have the procession back to the church. And to this day on the anniversary of that Eucharistic miracle, they go to this lady's house with with a consecrated host and they process back to the church in recognition of that eucharistic miracle and then the last one i want to talk about is um in lanciano this is probably one of the more famous uh miracles lanciano italy there was a, a basilian monk who was celebrating mass 
And he just kind of in his heart had a lot of doubt about what was going on in the mass and his belief in Christ. And uh, basically uh, at the consecration after the, uh, during the consecration, it, the, the host started to bleed and the uh, wine turned into blood. And it was this miraculous event. And this is kind of uh, pointing to Dennis, like you said, something to kind of help affirm someone's faith or anybody who's having doubts. And so this is famous because it happened during mass, which is not a normal thing for Eucharistic miracles. And so it's very popular, very famous. And again, this has been tested, AB blood type, heart tissue. Um, and uh, it's, it's just phenomenal because we get to, we get to celebrate this you know, year after year. Uh, kind of a, a last one that I really like is St. Januarius, you know, the blood that liquefies, you know, twice a year, uh, which I thought was really cool. And then they do this big thing around that. And I'm sure there's a lot of really interesting science around that. But here's some that, I, that I've been, you know, learning about and been very captivated by uh, as, I, as I get to learn more. Well, there's one I'm looking at in this book. It's the Eucharistic Miracle of Lenciano. I guess that's Italy. And um, happened in yeah, the 16th that's what, century. That's the one, yeah, that's the one I was just talking about. Oh, yeah. And in this book, they have pictures of the flesh, the, the vagus nerve, the adipose tissue, the muscular fiber cells. And apparently, you know, it's been there for 400 years. And that's another one of these things with these Eucharistic miracles is that this flesh doesn't, it doesn't decay. And they do these charts of the proteins that's still in the blood that normally wouldn't be there unless it was fresh blood and so on. It's kind of... Um, kind of amazing to see and uh the statistics that that one thing really blew me away that the ab negative blood type is so rare that it was it would be almost impossible to forge because people to for, make a forgery out of it by putting human blood on a host and calling it a miracle because you wouldn't be able to find people with that and this is before people knew about blood types they didn't even know about blood types till the 19th century so to have miracles from the 1600s or the 1300s that all have this AB negative blood type in different continents and different places before anybody knew how to test blood for this type. It's just another layer of sort of scientific verification of a miracle, which is a very unscientific thing. It's kind of, a, it's amazing stuff. And hopefully it should make us love the Eucharist more. Chris, does it make you love the Eucharist more? Yes, it does. I love this Good podcast. Answer. Good yeah, no, it I, makes me I've love enjoyed, the podcast more. <laughs> I've enjoyed listening to you guys on this. That's good. I'm sorry I haven't been more helpful, but I've been taking it all in. That's right. You've been answering the questions nearly single handedly for seven years. So you can take a breather every so often. <laughs> Speaking of questions, Jesse. Yeah, we have a we have another great question. Uh, Do we have an email that miraculously turned into a question? No, we don't. But uh, oh. but we do have a question for Chris to miraculously answer. That would be a miracle. Let's see. All it. right. With your heart tissue involved. Mail call. Mail call. Oh, Moses. Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? In my case, sir, the question is totally without meaning. Okay, this week we have a question from Kunigunda. Kunigunda says, at my parish, one of the priests has a nice singing voice at a weekday mass when there is no choir or cantor. After he has finished distributing Holy Communion, he stands behind the altar, announces a communion song number from the hymnal, and then starts singing it, in, and the congregation joins in. Sometimes he sings in harmony. 
is this something he should be doing or is it something uh, to be done by a cantor? And should there be a communion song uh, at all after communion has been distributed? So if there's no song during the communion procession, sorry about that. Uh, Chris, what do you say? <laughs> a lot of questions there. Uh, yeah, well, the, the, for for communion, I mean, the, the kind of the first thing that should be done is that there should be the communion chant the that's uh, sung to accompany the procession. Uh, if that doesn't happen, the either the priest or a lector or a cantor can say or sing the communion antiphon. So it's a little unclear about, the, at least for the communion antiphon, there's a variety of people who can um, who can lead this. This is at the germ number 87. Now, about the post-communion hymn, what number 88, and I think it's 168, 164 says, when the distribution of communion is over, if appropriate, the priest and faithful may pray quietly for some time. If desired, a psalm or other canticle of praise or a hymn may be may also be sung by the whole congregation. So it doesn't really say at number 88 uh, who should lead it, you know, but sort of the the I think a helpful principle here is that. You know, when when the church comes together to pray, it's sort of a microcosm of the mystical body of Christ, head, members, lungs, heart, everything like that. And so, if possible, the different oh, ministerial functions ought to be, or ministers, ought to be divided as, 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 you know, appropriate. Okay, so the priest isn't the cantor, the lector isn't the cantor, things like that. Each should do his or her own part, but... But if you don't have a cantor. Yeah, if you don't have a cantor, then well, another one is I think the the what it says for the uh is the for the Lamb of God, it says uh the supplication Lamb of God is usually sung by the choir or cantor with the congregation re replying. It doesn't say the priest says it, right? But in most cases, the priest says it if there's no cantor, right? So uh what it once you kind of step out of the norm, then you've got to start to do other quick and creative thinking. That's why you, you should, I know we're not in the ideal world, but that should remain the ideal. So I don't know. What do you think, Dennis? And that's, it's a good question. I don't know. Um, you know, number 88 says it may be sung by the entire congregation. It doesn't say who starts it. So uh, that's why I, I just, I just kicked it over to you, Chris. What's your decision? Mm. Uh, the best solution would be to, to find a cantor for these, uh, I presume what maybe whatever mass this is, or whatever time mass this is. But if it's yeah. a morning weekday mass and there's no cantor, is it better to have the priest start the song or to have no song mm. after communion? Well, it does say uh, if desirable, right? It says, uh, yeah, number eight, uh, if desired, a psalm or canticle of, of praise. Well, it's the, the pastor or the priest who gets to decide what's desirable, you know, in light of the needs of his congregation. So if he, or assembly, if he, sees that that's desirable and it's not going to happen unless he starts it then it might be up to him yeah i guess we'd have to uh, appeal to the higher authorities on that one for All real right. clarity kunagunda i hope that answers your question and if you have a question for us you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com thank you and, and god, god bless, bless. another episode of liturgy guys has mercifully come to an end our hosts are Chris, Get Out of My Dreams and Into My Carsons, Dennis, Big McNamara, and Jesse, Y-O-Y-O Weiler. Our producers are Michael, Don't Be So Coy, and Nathan, First Round Draft Pickman. Our epiclesis inspector is Isabel Ringing. 
Our liturgical bookkeeper is Miss L. Romano. Our official aerobics instructor is Jen Uflecht. Our enforcer of choral discipline is Don B. Flat. Our official rubrics interpreter is Dewey Neal. Our self-gift provider is Kenosis. Our simplicity enforcer is Fran Siskin. And lastly, our crack team of confessors is Dewey, Shrivam, and Howe. And even though overstoles become understoles when they hear us say it, we are the, the Liturgy, Liturgy Guys. Guys. Now that's a podcast. <laughs>